Welcome to an NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. In this program, the opioid epidemic in New Jersey, addiction treatment. This program was recorded Friday, September 14th, 2018 at the Hilton Gardens Inn in Hamilton, New Jersey. New Jersey continues to be a national leader when it comes to opioid addiction, both in the scope of the impact on the state and in the public and private response to the disease. More than 1,600 state residents died of opioid-related issues in 2016. Former Governor Chris Christie brought significant attention to the disease, and Governor Phil Murphy has fine-tuned the response with new investments to support data collection, community-based treatment providers, and addressing the underlying causes of addiction. But the opioid-related deaths continue to climb, in part because of powerful new drug cocktails, and as many as 3,000 Garden State residents are expected to be killed by these drugs this year. In this part two of a three-part podcast series, we'll explore the challenges involved with opioid addiction treatment, hearing from clinical leaders, community-based providers, and the state official who oversees many of these programs. Now let's go to the lectern where John Mooney, the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, is introducing the program. Welcome. Uh, My name is John Mooney. I'm the founding editor of NJ Spotlight, and um, thank you very much for being here. Uh, really, uh, I would say there's really no more important issue facing New Jersey and really the country um, than the opio- opioid crisis and, and what it's doing to families and communities and and, um, and obviously individuals. I, I think I, I saw recently a, a statistic that uh, in New Jersey were already at more than 2,000 uh, addiction-related deaths um, in this year, uh, double the numbers of, of a couple of years ago. So. Uh, it's not getting better. Um, obviously, a lot more attention to it, but a lot of lives still being uh, affected. Um, and as such, we have devoted, Spotlight has devoted a lot of energy towards not just the coverage of the opioid crisis in New Jersey, but but having these kinds of discussions and, and bringing people together to, to talk about it. We held um, our the first of three uh, conferences on, on the crisis, on the issue of prevention, uh, this is the second of the three, obviously focusing on treatment, and then we will be having a third one, mark it on your calendar, uh, October 25th, is that right, Steve? Yes, yep, October 25th at D- Douglas College, uh, focusing on recovery, um, and we hope you can attend that as well, and, and, and that's not the last of it. We hope to do more uh, in 2019 as well, but it's something that uh, we've, we feel, and, and I think everyone in this room probably feels is, is more than worthy of the discussion, so we... We're happy to, uh, to be part of that and, and bring folks together, as I said. Um, before we start the discussion, I, I do want to do a little shameless marketing um, for NJ Spotlight and a and membership pitch. Uh, as many of you know us, uh, we've been around now for eight plus years. We are a public policy site um, created in 19, or 2010, uh, a bunch of uh, print refugees in journalism. Uh, we came mostly from the Star-Ledger and, and wanted to keep our, our business alive and found a lot of support from uh, philanthropy and, and private sector as well and, and launched, in, as I said, in 2010 and are going strong. And, and um, I, we couldn't do it without our readers. We couldn't do it without our supporters like yourselves. Um, I would uh, encourage you to con- continue that support. It really makes a difference. Uh, there's there's lots of ways to support us, not just monetarily, but coming to these events, reading us, sharing our stories, tell people about uh, what we do. Um, the more folks that know our work and is obviously the better for us. 
uh, become a member, make a donation. It really does make a difference. Um, so please uh, continue that support, and, and we will be appreci forever appreciative. Um, also, you know, and I just do want to talk about these talks that we do. We've done more than 50 of them in our eight years uh, on all kinds of issues. Um, and I think it's just in, in this world of online conversation and sometimes, um, you know, not so polite conversation, I think getting folks in the room and talking to each other and meeting each other, I think, is important to the public discourse. And it's, it's always been part of our mission. Uh, it's part of our business model. Uh, it's just, I think it's really a, a real testament to, to all of you that you want to come and, and talk about these things. Um, we wouldn't be able to do it without our staff. And I want to pull, call out a couple of them. One of them just disappeared, I think. Uh, but first, Steve Shallot, our business uh, director and, and really the, the brainchild be behind a lot of the things we do on the business side. And Rachel Holland disappeared, but she's um, our events director and, and has really been uh, critical to pulling these off as well. And we couldn't do it without our sponsors. Um, you know, these, as, as I mentioned, this is uh, a, a source of revenue for us and helps keep us alive, helps us keep getting paid, um, you know, helps on all these things that I've talked about in terms of the public discourse. So I, I do want to specifically thank the, the sponsors. And I think Steve is going to come up and, and say a few words about each of them, and then we'll get the program started. Steve? Thank you, John, and thanks everyone for coming. And um, I'm Steve Shallot. I'm the Business Development Director, and uh, I serve as a producer of these events. And as such, I'd like to uh, call out and thank specifically our sponsors who uh, who make this possible and signal support for the issues that we are illustrating. And have this fine panel and uh, speaker, Dr. Ferrari, to help illustrate the uh, treatment aspect of uh, dealing with the ep the opioid crisis. Um, so the, uh, the sponsors, uh, firstly, Cooper University Healthcare, um, with more than 1.6 million patient visits a year, is a leading academic tertiary care health system in South Jersey and the Philadelphia region. The health system, which is affiliated with Cooper Medical School of Rowan University, employs 630 physicians practicing in more than 75 specialties and operates more than 100 outpatient locations, including four urgent care centers. The Cooper University Hospital is one of only three level one trauma centers in New Jersey, the only one serving South Jersey, where each year more than 5,500 critically ill and injured patients are transferred from local, local hospitals for treatment. And celebrating its fifth anniversary next month is the Health Systems MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, which provides New Jersey residents with advanced cancer care. Uh, thank you to Cooper University Healthcare. Also sponsoring uh, is Amerigroup, which is a managed Medicaid health care health plan that has worked in partnership with the state of New Jersey since 1996 and serves all 21 New Jersey counties. And with over 300 local associates, Amerigroup works to provide high-quality, cost-effective care that meets the needs of our members. Um, and in 2018, according to the National Committee for Quality Assurance, Amerigroup achieved the highest overall quality rating in the New Jersey Medicaid program. And Amerigroup and its affiliated companies in 26 states have taken a leadership role in battling the national opioid epidemic via a comprehensive strategy of prevention, treatment, and deterrence. Also sponsoring is Hackensack Meridian Health, which is New Jersey's largest and most comprehensive health network with 16 hospitals, 450 patient care locations, 
and 6,500 physicians reaching two-thirds of the state's population. This year, they launched the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine at Seton Hall University to pursue a mission of redefining medical ed education and keeping future physicians in New Jersey. The Hackensack Medical uh, Meridian Health Partners with leading providers and institutions, including the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, to deliver exceptional patient care in New Jersey and to invest in innovations to improve healthcare delivery. Um, sponsoring also the Employers Association of New Jersey. The EANJ is a nonprofit trade association dedicated to improving employer employee relations and to facilitating the exchange of information among employers in the state. They play a key role in helping companies master the complexities of labor standards and regulations. The Employers Association of New Jersey also helps good employers become better employers by assisting with work health solutions and benefits such as multi-employer health benefits plans, telemedicine, employee assistance, and wellness programs. Another sponsor is the Medical Society of New Jersey. Founded in 1766, the Medical Society of New Jersey is the oldest professional society in the United States. The society's mission is to promote the betterment of public health and the science and art of medicine. The Medical Society of New Jersey represents all medical disciplines, specialties, and practice settings and serves as the leading advocate for patient and physician rights in New Jersey. Their members are dedicated to ensuring delivery of the highest quality medical care throughout the state. And finally, we'd like to thank Seabrook for sponsoring. Seabrook is a leading not-for-profit treatment center specializing in addiction and other co-occurring mental health disorders for adults. They start serving treatment needs for over 44 years. Seabrook has six locations throughout New Jersey and Pennsylvania and works with most commercial insurances. Seabrook's level of care includes detox, short-term residential, long-term residential, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, and medical and medication-assisted treatment. They have a young, special young adult track, a Christian track, as well as a family program. Seabrook's chief clinical officer, Dr. Alberta Montano DeFabio, specializes in trauma-informed care, and their medical director, Dr. Joseph Ranieri, is a member of the American Board of Addiction Medicine. And Seabrook has a table over here with information. We hope you'll stop by. And um, part of the reason for spelling these uh, sponsor statements out so specifically is that it encodes it into the podcast of this event, which will be available afterwards in edited form um, on the NJ Spotlight site and wherever you find podcasts. Thank you very much. All right, let's get going. I do want to add that we um, also will be writing a story about this event and, and creating a page on our site around this event where uh, those that podcast will rest as well as any information that is presented um, at this meeting. So this doesn't have to end here by any means, and, and that's an opportunity to share um, with folks as well. And of course, what's an event without a hashtag um, in, in, these, in this day and age? And as you'll see, it's uh, opioids in New Jersey, if, if folks um, want to do stuff on social. Uh, so let's get going. Um, our keynote, keynote speaker, it's wonderful to have him here, um, actually reached out to us uh, when, heard that, when we heard that we were doing this event and, and wanted to uh, speak to the federal response to the opioid crisis. And, and it's something that doesn't necessarily get uh, as much attention as it should. And uh, we certainly welcome um, Dr. Anthony Ferreri um, to speak to us. He's the regional director of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, has a long history in this issue before that. Uh, he was the CEO uh, 
at the Staten Island University Hospital, just around the corner uh, from here, and worked very closely with law enforcement and healthcare providers around the opioid crisis. So brings both a perspective from, um, from Washington and the federal response, as well as on the ground um, in, in, a, in a place much like New Jersey that is facing this crisis hard. So I would like to invite Dr. Anthony Ferreri uh, to speak for a few minutes, and after that, we will get the panel going. Dr. Ferreri. Uh, thank you, John, and thank you all for the opportunity to uh, be here today. Um, for those who, uh, who do any public speaking, I would recommend that you keep your coffee away from your presentation. Um, and um, for those who say that you can't go home again, I am uh, living proof that you can. Uh, I have over 40 years of experience working in the healthcare industry. And uh, I was at one time the uh, Vice President for Human Resources at St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, New Jersey. Uh, and uh, speaking of the Newark Star-Ledger, I had the opportunity while at St. Barnabas some 30 years ago to write a series of articles on transformation of healthcare at the time. And it seems like we're always talking about transformation of healthcare, but back in the late 80s, uh, I was writing about the transformation to DRGs, uh, where we had taken retrospective payments in hospitals where you got more money if you kept the patient in the hospital because you got a daily rate. And then there was a review at the end of the year, and when they took that review, they would determine whether or not you should get an increase in your daily rate because of the bottom line of the hospital, which the policy back then in both New York and, and New Jersey was that you wanted to make sure that hospitals didn't make money. Uh, and uh, as a result of that policy, we came up with DRGs, which then put an emphasis on getting the patients out of the hospital sooner rather than later, because as we've learned over the last 30 years, hospitals aren't always the best place for somebody to be. So we've seen that reduction, but unfortunately, New Jersey got hit much harder than most other states with the transformation of the DRGs, because those of you who were in the business at the time may recall, uh, a lot, of hospital a lot of hospital closures followed the transformation to DRGs. Uh, and I happen to have worked at, uh, for those of you who might remember, the hospital center at Orange, which compromised Orange Memorial Hospital and New, New Jersey Orthopedic Hospital. Uh, then I moved on to United Hospitals in Newark, uh, which comp comprised four hospitals in that city. And then I moved on to Alexian Brothers Hospital in Elizabeth, New Jersey, before moving on to St. Barnabas. Now, the fact that I was in three hospitals that closed had nothing to do with the fact that I worked there. Uh, it had more to do with the change and transformation of healthcare. So uh, uh, I, I've spent some time, as you can probably figure out, uh, working in hospitals. And uh, for the last 20 years or so, uh, I spent a lot of time working at my hometown hospital, Staten Island University Hospital, first as a board member and then as an executive vice president, followed by a 12-year tenure as president and CEO of the hospital. During that period of time, and again on the subject of transformation, and as you can see, St. Barnabas is no longer an individual hospital and Hackensack is no longer an individual hospital, and Staten Island University Hospital is no longer an individual hospital. It's part of a 24 hospital system today called Northwell Health. You, you've seen those commercials look north. Uh, I don't know why, because it's out east. 
But uh, the, the Northwell system has taken on the task, just as Hackensack and Barnabas have, in the transformation of healthcare to bring hospitals together. Because as many of us has learned, and with the example of Hospital Center at Orange, United Hospitals, Alexian Brothers, most of us in this industry uh, have learned that it's very, very difficult for a hospital to survive independently. And that's why more and more you see hospitals moving in this direction. So I followed my time at St. Barnabas Hospital, uh, and I left the Northwell system as part of what they call succession planning. And uh, during my one year of retirement, I decided that I would volunteer at Borough Hall, Staten Island Borough President Jim Otto, took me on as a senior advisor, and my role for one year was to deal with the opioid crisis in Staten Island. Uh, because to our surprise, for those of us who live in that community, being probably the highest per capita income of any borough in the city of New York, uh, and having more of a suburban feel, I think we really should be part of New Jersey than New York, but having more of a suburban feel, uh, it came as quite a shock to the people in Staten Island that Staten Island has the highest rate of opioid overdose deaths of any of the five boroughs per 100,000 lives. So it's no longer in the back alleys, in the dark alleyways, it's no longer affecting poor people, just poor people, people that, who, who are more, uh, uh, who are, are, are more vulnerable, if you will. It, it's impacting people who are in the middle class, upper middle class, across the whole spectrum of any age that we've ever seen before. And that's why when we take a look at this thing, it affects everybody. It affects everybody and the effects are devastating as I think these uh, slides will point out. Now, one of the things I learned when I went to work for the borough president and volunteered for that year, uh, we actually brought in um, uh, Dr. Joshua Sharfstein uh, from uh, Johns Hopkins University, who is a pleasure to work with. He is the former commissioner of, the of health of the state of Maryland. And Dr. Sharfstein had uh, done a remarkable job in Rhode Island and West Virginia. And what he does with his team from Johns Hopkins, and this might be something for New Jersey to consider as well, what he does with his team from Johns Hopkins is he brings in a group or gathers a group of addictive disease experts who come in and they take a look at the data and the data that really matters. And when he, when he does that, uh, he, he can concentrate because as you know, what we were dealing with in Staten Island is not unlike what you're dealing with in any community. And that is that there's so many initiatives going on. Everybody is doing whatever they can to stop this crisis and this epidemic and what we're dealing with in terms of the opioid crisis. So everybody's throwing everything they have at it. And there may be 20, 30, 40 initiatives going on at the, at the same time. So what Johns Hopkins does and what Dr. Sharfstein does is that he, with a group of addictive disease experts, takes a look at data, and they come back and they say, this is what really matters. This is what you should be paying attention to. And what we found with that is that one thing we learned, as you all know, is that data may be a couple of years old. Uh, and stuff that you need in your local community, I'm not talking about a federal basis or a nationwide basis, I'm not just talking about a statewide basis, but in your community, it's difficult to get up-to-date data that can be very important to you in determining what the policy and what the approach, approach is. So with that, I thought it would be a good opportunity just a couple of weeks ago 
uh, Admiral Brett Garor, who is the Assistant Secretary for Health and Senior Advisor for Opioid Policy, uh, presented these slides to the regional. There are 10 regional directors across the United States. I am one of 10. And um, it, it's interesting that when you take a look at the people who represent you uh, from the federal level, that uh, I, I happen to have something rather unique when compared to the other nine regional administrators. I've actually worked uh, in healthcare in two of the states within my region. Uh, and that is rather unique when you take a look at the backgrounds of the regional directors for the United States Department of Health and Human Services. So I've got a little bit more knowledge of what's happening. In addition to New York and New Jersey, I'm also responsible for Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. And the emphasis of our attention in, in those two territories is what we are doing in terms of what happened as a result of Hurricane Maria. So that's the concentration of the office of HHS there. And the concentration more in New York and New Jersey today happens to be on the opioid crisis, although the secretary has four priorities that he's working on. But what I'm here to talk about today is his number one priority, and that is dealing with the opioid crisis. So Rachel, if you will. I, I think this slide tells it all, and you're in the business, so you, you're not surprised by any of this, but I think it's important when you take a look at this slide to notice that what you have here is the opioid mortality between 2000 and 2016 with any opioid. So you can see how that pattern has risen here. And what you can see with these other three lines is that there seems to be a little bit of a leveling off even a little bit of a decline when you take a look at opioid deaths. However, there is one line that follows almost directly the same pattern as any opioid death, and that is other synthetic opioids. So while you've seen the opioid deaths level off or decline a little bit as a result of all the work that is being done to stem the tide of, of, opi of the opioid crisis, you see here the dramatic impact of synthetic opioids, and how that has also in turn impacted deaths across the board for any opioids. So, and it's much more deadly when you're dealing, as you know, with synthetic uh, opioids. Next slide, Rachel. The overdose mortality by drug class. So again, as you can see here, same particular pattern. You see the opioids in general. Uh, the blue line, you see heroin, which is interesting that that has kind of leveled off uh, and as you move across the board, you see the synthetic, synthetic opioids following the same exact pattern of the increase in deaths with any opioids to the synthetic opioids. So you see the impact specifically taking a look at what is impacting the overall opioid deaths themselves. Next slide. This is the map of the United States, duh. And uh, in this map, you can see uh, according to the colors here, where you have dark blue and then lighter blues as you move along, and then you're getting into the oranges, and the oranges are getting darker and darker. And as you can see here, New Jersey uh, is in the darkest orange that we have here. So it has a, a major impact in terms of what's happening in the state of New Jersey. Next slide. This to me was, and I'm a history buff, so this to me was shocking when I, I had the opportunity to take a look at this particular slide. So um, on the left here, these are deaths as, that resulted from war. 
four wars that we were impacted by, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Uh, and, and when you take a look at this slide here, where over 400,000 lives were lost in combat, and you take a look over here to overdose deaths, and you take a look at what the opioids have led in this, in this blue-purple box here, and then you take a look above that on all opioid, on all drug deaths, overdose deaths, you can see the major impact that it has had on this country in general. And that is a shocking slide to me. Next slide. Uh, the proportion that's related to opioids by age group. Now, this is a little bit surprising in itself because not so much that there's a peak here in the 25 to 34, where uh, in, in, in previous epidemics or crises, we've actually seen that it's probably a little bit uh, younger age. But what is startling with this slide is that as you move across, you, you also see that it impacts 34, 35 to 44, 45 to 54 and older the overdose deaths that are resulting from opioid use. Next slide. Overdose mortality by class of drug, and this isn't all that clear, but in the first box, this is October 2016 and October 2017. So when taking a look at the 12-month period ending October 2016, 12-month period ending October 2017, heroin use has had a slight increase uh, natural and semi-synthetic opioids, you've had a slight increase. Methadone, you've had a slight decrease. Synthetic opioids, when you take a look at this, synthetic opioids, there's been a major increase in deaths here, and in cocaine, a major increase, and uh, psychostimulants, a uh, slight increase, or I guess in terms of the percentage, it's also a heavy increase and a heavy lift there. Next slide. Critical role of law enforcement. Uh, now, now, this is also a fascinating slide because it gives you an idea of how dreadful and how much of an impact the synthetic, drug, synthetic drugs have uh, because the impact is so great in the difference between the amount of deaths that resulted, the overdoses that result from use of opioids uh, to use of synthetic, uh, and, and in this case, fentanyl. So a, uh, inside a truck in Nebraska, troopers found enough fentanyl to kill millions of people. State troopers seized 118 pounds of fentanyl. That amount of fentanyl would contain enough lethal doses to potentially kill more than 26 million people. The largest fentanyl seizure in state history and one of the largest in the United States. Next slide. Uh, fentanyl disguised as oxycodone. Uh, teen charged the largest seizure ever of fentanyl pills over the U.S. border. At the U.S. border, a suspect drove across the border with 11,500 pills of fentanyl, 61 pounds of meth, 14 pounds of heroin. Officers discovered two bags in a box, each filled with fentanyl pills designed to resemble oxycodone. Uh, think about how dangerous that is because a deadly masquerade, because with oxycodone, it's 1.5 times the strength of morphine and fentanyl is 50 to 100 times the strength of morphine. So think about the unsuspecting person who's taking something that they think is oxycodone when they're actually, actually taking fentanyl. Economic cost to the United States. In 2015, the economic cost of the crisis, $504 billion. Previous estimates of the economic cost of opioid crisis greatly understated by undervaluing the most important component of the loss, fatalities resulting from overdoses. And I think in the coming slides, you're also going to see 
other impacts of, uh, that affect mortality that aren't at the, site, at the time of the overdose, but it may impact others as we move on along the way. With uh, and This is the slide, actually. It's infectious consequences of opioid epidemic. HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, endocarditis, skin, bone, and joint infections. Next slide. Acute hepatitis C. Now, this is where I was talking about the impact, not just with the acute issue of the overdose deaths. We're talking about the impact that takes place as a result of the opioid crisis that leads to, may lead to death, of course, later on. Uh, and what we see here is that when you take a look at hepatitis C, I mean, we're, we're all proud of the fact that as a result of the efforts that are being made on, the, on medicine and the advances in medicine and the precautions that have been taken over the years, you've seen a decline here. But now as a result of the increased use of drugs, we're seeing an increase far beyond what we had seen back here and shooting up to this area at levels that we've never seen before in 2016. And we, of course, know the impact that hepatitis C has. It is a deadly disease. Next slide. Now, how it affects children. It's, again, not just the acute nature of the overdose. This is after the fact. It's a, it's a side effect of drug abuse. It's a side effect of, of opioid use. But as you can see here, it, it affects the innocent as well. Uh, so outcomes in the fetus, growth restriction, prematurity, death, outcomes in the newborn, low birth weight, small head circumference neonatal abstinence syndrome, outcomes in the child, developmental disorders. And as you can see by here, the, the amazing increase that we've seen in all of these incidents from 2008, not that long ago, to 2016. Next slide. HHS is five-point strategy. HHS is five-point strategy. And I mentioned to you earlier that the Secretary, Secretary Azar has four priorities that he's dealing with. Uh, in, in this particular case, this is his highest priority, and it is the, as it relates to the opioid crisis. Strengthen public health data, reporting and collection. That's what we talked about earlier. I mentioned when Johns Hopkins came in and they wanted to know the impact of the opioid crisis on Staten Island, they were working from data that in some cases was more than three years old. So it was very, very difficult to, to take information out of there and determine what really matters. Now with the assistance of the New York City Department of Health and the assistance of the New York State Department of Health, Staten Island has been able, and Johns Hopkins has been able to get more current data, but it's still far behind. The secretary was in New York this week. He visited the regional offices, and he said it is a priority because even now he's dealing with six-month-old data, which compared to what we have is better, but it's not really where we want to be. We want to be able to get information so that we can deal with these issues concurrently. Uh, and that's why it's important, and that's why one of his priorities within the opioid priority is getting this information out as quickly as possible. Advance the practice of pain management to decrease the inappropriate use of opioids, improve access to prevention, treatment, and recovery services, enhance the availability of overdose reversing medications, support cutting edge research on pain and addiction, leads to new treatments and identify effect and identifies effective public health interventions. Next slide. Reaching recent HHS actions to address the opioid crisis, August 6, 2018, the FDA, part of HHS, issued new scientific recommendations aimed at encouraging more widespread innovation and development of novel medication-assisted treatments. Now, 
Many of you may be surprised that the administration fully supports MAT. Uh, it, it is one of the priorities. It is one of the priorities that the secretary has in terms of dealing with the crisis and a very, very important priority for the treatment of opioid use disorder. The draft guidance outlines new ways for drug developers to consider measuring and demonstrating the effectiveness and benefits of new or existing MAT products. July 11th, CMS granted New Hampshire a waiver to expand substance use disorder treatment capacity. On uh, June 21st, SAMHSA announced the availability of $50 million for federally recognized tribes and tribal organizations to address the opioid crisis. And again, it may not come as much of a surprise to you, but uh, addiction is, is very, very, very prevalent uh, in, in the uh, Native American uh, communities. And um, as the regional administrator, regional director for HHS, I mentioned that I'm responsible for New York, New Jersey, uh, the Virgin Islands, and Puerto Rico. I also have responsibility for the eight tribes that are located within the region. Uh, and there are none in New Jersey, by the way. Uh, despite the casinos that may have come up. But there are none in New Jersey, but there are eight tribes in New York, most of them far upstate. Uh, so uh, my responsibility is also following what's going on uh, and what impacts the tribal nations. And, but they have a serious health issue, uh, serious health pr uh, provider issue, uh, and a serious uh, drug and alcohol issue that they are dealing with. Uh, CDC announced the Opioid Overdose Crisis Cooperative Agreement. Okay, thank you. Supplement the guidance which will provide $182 million to states and cities to address the opioid crisis. So uh, with that, uh, I will conclude the presentation. Any questions that anyone might have? Okay, well, uh, thank you for your time and thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Thank you very much, Dr. Ferrari. All right, let's get going with the uh, panel discussion. If you're a panelist, come on up uh, and take a seat. For each of you, there's also a um, uh, NJ Spotlight mug uh, on the floor next to you with some water. So anytime I'm taking a picture of you, just lift that up and uh, that will be great. I'd like to introduce Lilo Stanton. Uh, the moderator of today's event. She is uh, an old friend and, and, and colleague. Uh, first worked with Spotlight at our beginning in 2010 and then came on full-time in 2016. Uh, previously has also worked with Gannett newspapers and the Daily News and, and really has uh, taken our healthcare coverage to a new level uh, since joining us full-time and, and really uh, bringing both the depth of knowledge and, and uh, analytical mind uh, to a lot of these issues and, and also happens to be a darn good moderator. So I'd like to introduce Lilo Stanton who will lead this discussion. One thing I'd like to add, um, the way uh, we have a, a participation um, element to this which I think is really critical to it and on, your, on each of the tables are index cards. If there's questions uh, that you would like the moderator to address, write it out on the card and wave it to either Steve or, or Rachel or myself. We'll be around walking around the outskirts and we'll get it up to Lilo and, and she can uh, incorporate it in discussion if she can. Also, there are surveys. Please, um, we'd love to hear your feedback on, on how we're doing and what we can do better. So uh, if you could fill those out and either leave them on the table or uh, there's also a bin, a bin up the table, uh, front table to leave them. So, without further ado, Lilo Stanton. 
Thank you. I think I'm going to come around for now because we seem to be short one panelist. This is sort of like, you know, making this happen on the fly here. I'm sorry. Um, but I'll come around until, if that's okay, until uh, we get our other panel. So thank you, everybody, very much for joining us. Um, we all know why we're here. I won't repeat the grim statistics, uh, I think. And Dr. Ferrari, thank you for some excellent background, which really does point out how broad and deep a crisis this is. Um, so I'll introduce our, our panelists quickly, and then they're going to tell you a little bit more about their work here today. Um, let me see. Dr. Diraj Reina, the far end, Medi Medical Director of Substance Use Disorder Initiatives for Anthem, based in Chicago. Um, Anthem affiliated policies cover one in eight Americans, um, and it's sold in New Jersey as Amera Group, not the other Ameras. Um, then we have Dr. Zerbo, uh, Dr. Aaron Zerbo. Uh, assistant Professor in Psychiatry at the Psychiatry Department of Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, practicing provider with a large outpatient clinic, and a psychiatric consultant at University Hospital, I believe. Then we have Dr. Caitlin Baston, is that pronounced right? Um, Medical Director for Addiction Medicine at Cooper University's Cooper University Health Care's Urban Health Initiative Institute, excuse me practicing physician in uh, Camden, and a, seems to be a growing star on the lecture circuit. Um, she does a lot of work with uh, medical uh, medication-assisted treatment, including for pregnant women um, with SUDs and infants a, with neonatal abstinence syndrome. And then last but not least, we have, U, uh, not U.S., State Department of Human Services Commissioner Carol Johnson. Um, she, before this, was the Senior Health Policy Advisor in the Obama White House, uh, focused on ins expanding insurance coverage, including for behavioral health, uh, worked with the U.S. Senate on a Special Committee for Aging, and as well with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services at one point. So with that... Uh, I'll let you, we'll just go down this way. Tell us a little bit more about sort of why you're here and what addiction, how, what brings you to the table related to addiction? Great. Well, thank you to Spotlight for hosting this and to John and Steve, but particularly Lilo, um, who is, um, as all good reporters should be, tough but fair. Um, and so uh, that is exactly, uh, we're so lucky to have her here in the state. Thank you to all of you for your um, commitment to this issue. And I'm really excited to have so many clinical experts on the panel here. I think um, having uh, listened to the good doctor's uh, presentation, laying out sort of the scope of the problem, the big question for all of us is, what are we doing about it, right? Um, and so I just want to hit on three quick things. One, coverage. The other, capacity. And finally, recovery. So on the coverage front, um, Nothing has been more important to the, to confronting this epidemic than Medicaid expansion. We have added, we are covering 550,000 lives in New Jersey. There are thousands of people getting opioid use disorder treatment as a result of Medicaid expansion. Uh, similarly, in the, in the commercial market, the individual and small group market now have to cover mental health and substance use disorders, um, which was not required in the past. And so people are getting coverage through that avenue. And the governor just took actions in, in cooperation with the legislature this year to bring those premiums down by 9.3%. So we are excited about 
um, what our coverage opportunities are. And I think uh, I will add to that that we're also excited in the Department of Human Services that the Division of Mental Health and Addiction Services is coming back to us, um, which allows us to better coordinate our Medicaid and discretionary dollars to ensure that we're getting coverage to people who are uncovered or underinsured now. Um, but I think everyone on this panel will tell you, and all of you know, coverage is necessary but not sufficient. Um, and one of the um, other important parts of this equation is capacity, um, that people can get treatment, that they can get the clinical standard of treatment, meaning they can get medication-assisted treatment when they need it in a timely way. Um, and so what we are doing to expand access to treatment are a couple of things. Uh, one is we're implementing a Medicaid waiver that now allows us to pay in Medicaid for short-term and long-term residential treatment and detox services, which had uh, particularly the residential component of that for a long time, for <laughs> since the beginning of the Medicaid program, has not been a payable service in Medicaid. There's a long history about that, but we've gotten a waiver to be able to address that. Now what we need to do is make sure that those services are the services we need them to be and that they're, they're of high quality and they deliver the treatment people need. Um, in addition, uh, in this year's budget, the governor proposed a $100 million investment in confronting the opioid epidemic. A good chunk of that money we're using to figure out how to better build our community capacity on opioid addiction treatment. So residential is important, but again, not sufficient. We need that full continuum of services. We need providers across the continuum. We need primary care doctors to feel comfortable to have the supports they need to be able to provide this treatment. And as some of, uh, some of my colleagues on this panel will tell you, because we've had these conversations, it's not just about paying them correctly, but that's important important, but it's also about making sure that they have the clinical support and the mentorship and those other supports to get into this service. Because, you know, there's a lot, as the, the good doctor mentioned, there's been a lot of things in the public discussion about medication-assisted treatment. We all know it's the clinical standard. We need to make that a reality for folks by supporting providers and helping them take on this uh, service because that's how we're going to confront this epidemic by making sure people can, can connect, get connected to services when they need them. I think you'll hear from some of my other panelists that one of those issues may be about um, prior authorization. As you know, the legislature in this state lifted prior authorization in the commercial market, did not lift it in the Medicaid market, so we're taking a look at where the opportunities are there as well. Um, and then the final thing I want to make sure to talk about is recovery services, because if we're all successful in doing what we're here to do and we, and we um, are able to get people on a path to recovery, we need the social supports to work for those folks. So what the governor also said in the budget is we need to be looking at employment opportunities, housing opportunities. We need to make sure that people who are on a path to recovery are getting the supports that they need. Um, and here again is a place where I will go back to the Affordable Care Act and we also need to make sure that those people continue to get coverage, which is why we cannot let that Texas case lift um, undo the pre-existing condition protections in the Affordable Care Act, because people in recovery are going to continue to need care. And so we need to make sure as we get them from our Medicaid population into a commercial product as they get employment, that they can get coverage for the services they need to continue to sustain their recovery. So those are just some of the things that we're working on. Um, we have a lot of work to do. Clearly, when you look at that national map, we have a lot of work to do. Um, but the governor's committed to this. We have $100 million in the budget to do it. We're building on the framework that we have. And I'm delighted that we have such terrific clinical leaders here in the state to help us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, 
I'm Dr. Caitlin Baston. I'm delighted to be here, and I feel so supported in this panel. Um, there are some really wonderful minds coming together to do incredible work, and I just feel privileged to be able to be a part of this, to be honest. Um, I am a family physician. I trained in on the West Coast in Seattle in family and community medicine, and then on the ground doing family medicine, decided that there was an enormous need for addiction medicine for patients and for providers both because the providers weren't supported, the hospital wasn't supported, and the patients certainly weren't supported. And so I took a path to do an addiction medicine fellowship and then came back um, to the East Coast where I trained to work here, um, actually inspired some work by some work that was happening at Cooper and Dr. Jeff Brenner, who trained where I trained in family medicine, so that I could come down and work with patients who are in incredible need on the ground and give them this missing service and close these gaps. Um, so that's a little bit of the background of how I went into addiction medicine. And I had a focus in maternal child health um, when I did uh, family medicine. And I continued that focus through addiction medicine. So I now do a lot of work at the perinatal population, pregnant and parenting women and their children, and then the whole family. Again, the whole family approach. And I really think that that's the way we have to look at this in a biopsychosocial model. Um, so that's where I'm coming from and why I'm so motivated to do this work. And I will tell you every day that the reason that I feel privileged to do this work is that I get to watch on the front lines. I get to watch people get better. I get to be a part of this beautiful transformation in people's lives. And it's so rewarding. It's not a job that's hard. It's a job that's incredibly rewarding. Um, and I get to go to work with an incredible team. And I am very supported in doing it. So I am happy to, to walk this journey with my patients. Um, I think that when we look at this and we look at it as a full spectrum, we're doing incredible work um, from the policy perspective right now, and we really need to get on the ground and support people who are doing work on the front lines. Um, we are engaging patients, and we're continuing to work on engaging them. When a lot of the patients come through the Cooper Health System and other health systems, they come through through the emergency department or you know in the hospital extremely ill. And we need really safe places, whether that's from the emergency department or hospital or just walking in from somewhere for people to engage when they're very sick. Um, and as like a tertiary care center and a university medical center, I feel like this is a great time for me to take care of people who are extremely sick. And I want to support family physicians in doing this. As a primary care doctor, it's totally doable and we can get to primary care. But just like taking care of any other illness, if you ask people in primary care to take somebody with end-stage heart failure, they would say, I, I need help. Um, and that's that we need, we need experts or wraparound centers, centers of excellence, whatever you want to call it, for people when they're their sickest. And then we need to support primary care doctors to take them just like they take patients with hypertension or controlled diabetes or anything else. It's rewarding and it's so doable in primary care. So I just want to continue to support that um, to help patients to see to allow other providers to know how rewarding this work is. Um, and I feel really grateful to be here on the panel today. So thank you. Thank you. Jeff Brenners. My favorite. <laughs> 
Please, um, Dr. Zerbo. Yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Erin Zerbo. Um, I feel like the Caitlin Baston counterpart up in Newark. Um, <laughs> so I'm a psychiatrist, uh, not a family medicine person. But um, I work at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School, and I run a half-time a buprenorphine clinic that we're kind of ramping up. We just hired a social worker. Um, and I also work in the hospital on the psychiatric consultation service. So I see a lot of what Caitlin is talking about, about these patients coming in very sick to the ED, um, potentially getting admitted for all kinds of infections, endocarditis. Um, arthritis, septic arthritis, et cetera. And um, the hospital setting is actually a perfect time to be able to induct people onto either buprenorphine or methadone or even give them Vivitrol right before they walk out the door. So you kind of have a captive audience where you can really capture these patients and initiate medicated-assisted treatment. And I think the um, just kind of standing back and looking at the field overall, I think what we all kind of have to work on uh, preaching and making other people understand, we really at this point understand the neurobiology of addiction. Uh, within psychiatry, it's our most understood area. The only other area we understand as much is obsessive compulsive disorder. So we really have the circuits worked out. We know what neurotransmitters are involved. There's plenty more that we have to learn about the brain, but we do know a lot about this area. And we have 60 years of data to show that methadone is wildly, wildly successful as compared to placebo. And when you send people out without medication, without an agonist like methadone or buprenorphine, which is suboxone, or an antagonist like Vivitrol, which is naltrexone, if they don't have that medication on board, you see a huge spike in overdose death for the risk for that person. And so it might not be true for any individual, but when you look at a population level, it's just tremendous amount of unnecessary deaths because those people weren't offered medication-assisted treatment and they didn't have access to it. And so it's it's kind of, you know, there's a good thing and a bad thing. On one hand, we don't need more research to tell us how to treat addiction. We have enough right now and we know how to do that. But on the other hand, it's very frustrating that that hasn't been implemented, that you have patients that have an incredibly hard time getting into rehab, into detox. They need prior authorizations. They go to the pharmacy. They can't get their Suboxone. They get frustrated. They walk out. There's so many broken links in the system, and it's kind of disheartening to see it because we know what the solutions are. And so I think we need to take advantage of the political momentum of this crisis and really capitalize on that and get legislation introduced and have new policies that make this seamless for patients. Because as anybody knows who struggled with anything, even um, kind of addiction to cookies, right, when you're trying not to eat cookies and you're on a diet, you know that pull. When you're motivated in that moment, it might be a short window and you go to look for care, you go to ask someone for help, you need help in that moment. The next day and one week later is not going to be good enough. So I think we really have to start looking at our overall system and seeing how can we capture people quickly, how can we keep them engaged, and how can we give them the services that we know work for people once they're able to utilize them. Dr. Ann. Hi, I'm, uh, thank you for the introduction, Lilo, and thank you. I'm really honored that I'm in the presence of such uh, amazing, amazing uh, people. Uh, I want to tell, a, you know, I'm a psychiatrist by training, and, and I want to say a little bit about how I became Anthem's medical director overseeing addiction initiatives. Um, I mean, I, I started out after my residency, I started out uh, practice in a small rural area in northern Wisconsin on the beautiful shores of Lake, Lake Superior. And, and a community of 9,000 people on one side, you know, sort of uh, there was uh, one Native American reservation, on the other side, another Native American reservation. And as Dr. Ferry mentioned, I mean, the rates of addiction were just tremendous. Mm -hmm. And and when I first started there, I thought that 
you know, there, there's not going to be, this is such a beautiful rural area. And I did my residency in inner city Chicago. And I'm like, this is going to be great. I'm not going to see any addiction. And, and I'm not, <laughs> and, and, you know, of course, you know, I used to see addiction in inner city Chicago, but I, I'll tell you, um, the training most physicians receive in addiction is very, very limited. I mean, the studies that have been done, you know, first of all, there are very few reliable studies, but the studies that have been done, surveys that have been done say, uh, when you come out of medical school, anywhere from one to seven hours of training on addiction. Then, of course, in psychiatry, you get a little bit more. And these days, I hope it's more in, in, in the rest of medicine as well. But, but that speaks to the problem of why even why there is such limited capacity for treatment um, is even when you you can you can um, throw as much money as you want, but but if there's not enough people who have the skills, it's really difficult. So anyway, I was there and I saw that every single patient I was seeing, uh, especially at the sicker patients that I was seeing, um, you know, in, in requiring inpatient care, requiring partial hospital care, requiring IOP care, almost all of them had an addiction history, either current or very recent. That got me sort of, you know, doing a lot more of addiction work while I was in practice for eight years in that in that community and started pursuing an addiction medicine uh, certification after that and ended up getting that and went back to Chicago, medical director of a state psychiatric hospital, you know, 130-bed state psychiatric hospital. And, and you think about this, you know, who are the people who are in, in state psychiatric hospitals? You think about people with schizophrenia, people with bipolar disorder. Well, our most common discharge diagnosis was alcohol dependence. Mm -hmm. um, our second most common discharge diagnosis was opioid dependence. I mean, and, and schizophrenia and, and bipolar disorder as discharge diagnosis were number three and number four. Um, so, so there I you know, started basically, and, and we were not really doing a systematic job of starting people on medication-assisted treatment while they're in the hospital, and, 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 or even having a systematic protocol across all of our units of, of measuring, of managing withdrawal. And so we started that over the time that I was there, eventually moved on to managing a residential, large residential addiction treatment unit for the VA. And from there on, I was recruited by Anthem to help lead and, and develop our addiction initiatives. So that's how I ended up in Anthem. But the journey is one of seeing all of those things that everybody has pointed out here. And in Anthem currently, you know, as, as was mentioned at the beginning uh, by Steve, you know, one of the things that we're doing is trying to do uh, prevention uh, as far as addiction is opioid, response to opioid crisis is concerned, doing prevention, treatment, and, and uh, uh, finally deterrence. And when we talk about deterrence, we're talking about deterring fraud, waste, and abuse. Uh, and fraud, waste, and abuse takes various forms. It increases, and, and the reason why it's important to address, of course, is because it increases the cost for everybody and prevents direction of resources in the right direction. And it takes forms of, you know, inappropriate, inappropriate uh, testing, urine drug testing. You know, sometimes urine drug testing five times a week uh, for no good reason. And some, and 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 then you know also takes a, you know you you probably heard about it, read about it. You know patient brokering that happens, you know, so that's something that we're trying to discourage. Prevention for, for an insurance company like Anthem, I mean, ideally, we know what we as a society should be doing for prevention. It has to be done a, a lot earlier. It, it's not something you do when somebody's 35 years old or 20 years old. It really should be done a lot earlier. There are studies showing that if you can address, you know, certain issues, prevent trauma, you can prevent a lot of addiction. So, but but we can't do that as a, as as Anthem or Amerigroup um, here. So, what we do is we we try to do as much of the prevention from 
people getting addicted to prescription opioids as much as we can do, you know, restrict exposure, some following some of the CDC guidelines, essentially. Um, and, and then treatment, our biggest challenge, of course, is capacity. Uh, we have, and so what we are doing as Anthem to try to respond to that across the, across the uh, nation in all of our markets, we have adopted a strategy of collaborating with, with the ECHO program out of New Mexico, University of New Mexico. And we have developed ECHO collaboration with, we have developed a collaboration with them to try to train primary care physicians and their support staff in, on, on a regular basis to improve their skills. Um, and, and then also, uh, we have helped develop regional echoes that we are like partially funding to get, get them started in South Carolina, in, uh, in uh, West Virginia, in, um, you know, in uh, Cincinnati, in, in, in uh, Wisconsin, supporting. And anytime we come across echo programs in, in one of our markets, then we reach out to them and we say, okay, how can we help you, you know, get, get, be more successful? So in a nutshell, I mean, this is what we we have. You guys have one perspective on the at the front lines of the opioid epidemic. We see something in in data, we have, uh, and we are able to sort of respond to to try to do some of the same things from our end. You know, encourage that what you try to do at your end in in, in the front lines. That's that hurricane warning. Someone's yeah, <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> so um, that's a, a. I'm glad you brought up some of those issues about the psychiatric hospitals, because one of the topics that I wanted to talk about um, today uh, was integrated care. And by this, it, we could talk about a lot of different things about integrated care, but in particular, I'm thinking of dual diagnosis and why that's so important. So Dr. Zerbo, maybe we can start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about why this matters. What's it? I mean, most people here probably know, but just tell us what it is and how big a deal dual diagnosis patients are in addressing this problem. Um, so dual diagnosis means that you have a mental health diagnosis co-occurring with a substance use disorder diagnosis. Um, and it's really just that we see tremendous comorbidity between those two categories. So the um, in terms of people diagnosed with a mental health disorder, it makes you much more likely to also have a substance use disorder and vice versa. Um, this population is also the most likely to not make an outpatient appointment, not be following up with care, um, to have gaps in their treatment. And so this is the most vulnerable population. And I think we have to figure out special services, um, just like Caitlin was talking about, these wraparound services where people come in very debilitated and very sick, and how do we kind of transition them to get to um, an outpatient clinic that can continue to treat them. Um, one of the biggest problems, I think, in our healthcare system is that we think of the emergency room as for emergencies, right, that people are going to a primary care provider, but they only come to the emergency room when they have an emergency. But in fact, our emergency rooms are seeing a ton of what we call frequent flyers, people that are high recidivists, they're there frequently. Um, and Jeff Brenner has done a lot of this type of work. There's a lot of societal and environmental factors occurring as well. Um, you see this much more, of course, in low socioeconomic areas where people don't have access to clinics and their lives are kind of in chaos so they're not able to make appointments. Um, but in addition, just having a mental health diagnosis can make everything much tougher. So if you have bipolar disorder or depression, your symptoms can also impede you from getting that care. And the way that our emergency rooms are set up right now are that you come in, you have a problem, they fix it, and then they discharge you. There, we don't, we're not great about connecting people directly to an intensive outpatient program or having a step down or having come back the next day and be in a special sidetrack program. We basically say, go back to your primary care provider. And so we kind of need to reconfigure what we're doing with these high recidivism patients who are coming into our emergency room. And a huge portion of them are going to have both mental health and substance use. Dr. Bastin, you want to 
I would just echo everything that Dr. Zerbo just <laughs> said. Um, and also just talk about there are innovative ways to approach this. So one of the things we did at Cooper was our emergency department has been an incredible champion department. Um, and actually two of my, uh, my colleagues, two physicians that work in my division of addiction medicine are emergency medicine physicians and toxicologists. So they helped to train with me the entire emergency department in buprenorphine. So the, our emergency department can initiate MAT as soon as somebody comes in. Just getting that training changed hearts and minds, right? So I will even tell you the two ER docs that work with me on a daily basis, when I asked them to, we started talking about doing addiction medicine, um, they were less than enthusiastic. <laughs> um, and now they're champions. Now they, you know, they go to meetings, they talk on panels, they love their work. Again, once you start doing it, it's rewarding. Um, and now the emergency department also has a tool. They have support. What they used to see all the time were people coming in, and they still see, unfortunately, about 15 overdoses a day. Up to 30 was the max in the last couple of months. 30 overdoses in our emergency department in one day. We had one patient have 173 Narcan reversals in one year in our emergency department alone. Um, and that patient had never been started on MAT. So this is the work we can do. And it's amazing. We start using a tool that works and people get better. It's like, it's, I wonder if, you know, penicillin had a hard time. People were selling penicillin. Like, guys, I'm telling you, it works. Like, it's, there's a thing and we can treat it. Um, it's a medicine to treat a disease. We have medicines to treat diseases. And I know that this one carries a moral burden for people. I know that people are affected here. Families are affected. Hearts and minds are affected. You know, same with mental illness. When we're treating that, we say, oh, it's a disease and you treat it with medicine. But, but people feel this differently. And it's hard to think of it the same way. But if we break it down a little bit, and in the medical field, we can do that. We say, this is a disease that has medicine to treat it. If somebody comes in and has a heart attack in the hospital, it's not really an option for me to not offer them treatment for that, for that heart attack, right? That's medical malpractice. So I have a treatment that works for a disease. I can't not offer that to my patients. It doesn't mean that everybody's going to walk this journey in this way. If you have cancer, you can go and see an oncologist and you can opt out. You can say, I don't want chemo. I don't want those side effects. I'm going to spend the end of my life in a different way. But if we have chemo that is really efficacious for that cancer and you can say, hey, I'm just going to counsel you that if you do this, you have a 60% likelihood of getting better. You know, you, you need that option. I'm not going to say, yep, um, I'm just going to put you on this macrobiotic diet and good luck with your cancer. So the reality is that we need to offer treatments that work and we can train people all across the board to do it. And dual diagnosis, which is the beginning of this, these are the patients that get, you know, the least care and don't get these offered these treatments because they have barriers to coming in. I would say that, you know, the stats say when you take patients with substance use disorders, that's like 40 to 60 percent dual diagnosis. In my clinic, it's 90 plus. Um, everybody has at least anxiety, depression, so much PTSD. There's so much co-occurring mental illness. Um, and when we say low barrier clinic, what we mean by that is, I want a clinic where somebody can walk in when they need to walk in. Um, and the medical system isn't really built around that. We have like, here's your appointment slot. And if you're 15 minutes late, I have to reschedule you. 
And our patients are just not necessarily in a place where they can do that, especially with substance use and, and mental illness. So that's why, too, when I say just go to primary care, primary care isn't necessarily set up to take somebody right from the emergency room or, or right off the street who can't make an appointment right on time. Um, not that they can't get there because they can, but that we need low barrier, low entry clinics for patients with dual diagnosis. And, and most of our patients have that. I wanted to ask you, yeah, we're getting a lot of great questions about how can we train doctors better for this, which we'll get to. But tell us first, what is the state, how is the state addressing this dual diagnosis issue? Yeah, so, so I will say um, uh, issue one is is getting medication-assisted treatment where it needs to be, when it needs to be, um, as quickly as it needs to be. Um, uh, and sometimes when you're in the midst of an ep epidemic, it's hard to step back and do the root cause analysis, but we need to be able to look back and say untreated mental illness is a significant problem and that people self-medicate and that we need to be thinking further upstream and need to be thinking about... Um, adverse childhood events and trauma-informed care. And so we need to be thinking about the full continuum. Um, so we are looking at everything from how do we operationally make this work by fixing our licensing structure to how do our colleagues at the Division of Children and Families really work in a systematic way to help advance trauma-informed trauma care. So MAT, while you have the mic, um, we've been talking a lot about MAT and we're going to stick on this topic for a second because I think it really is sort of the core of, of what gets to, to treatment in a lot of cases. Tell us how the state is doing there. Um, it, what are some of the barriers that you found? I mean, I know some of that falls into the Department of Health, but sort of how can you do that first thing, getting MAT to where it needs to be? So so here are some of the things that we're looking at. My colleague Roxanne is sitting here. Um, so um, uh, she's doing a ton of work on this. Um, one, uh, through our substance use disorder waiver in Medicaid, we are um, now covering in Medicaid residential treatment. Not all of those providers provide access to MAT, either directly or in some kind of affiliation. And so part of our goal is to get there with our residential providers. Two, um, we are, as we build our we, we are working to build some models around how we get more community-based providers. We have you know, we have what we call people who do, who do, you all know this, people who do medication assisted treatment are, have to be waived, have to get a waiver from the federal government. We have a okay number, not a great number, but an okay number of data waived docs in the state. Um, not as many as we need. Um, and we need more, um, so we need more providers to do that. There, you know, there are hurdles that come with that, many of which are perceived hurdles. And so we need to overcome those perceptions um, and help make it easier for um, providers to do that. Then there are the, the, um, the challenging patients. Um, who lead very complex lives and might have other clinical complications. They might have hep C. They might have a host of other things. And so having the kind of expertise that we have on this panel, those institutions that can be that support for providers who want to do MAT but are a little bit, I mean, you know, fairly, a little bit concerned about what some of the more complex patients might mean for them and, and maybe don't have the training for that. How do we help make sure? And that's some of the some of the things that we're working on with the new initiative in the governor's budget is 
How do we support providers um, in getting into this? How do we how do we pay appropriately? How do we make sure that it's not just prescri- the prescription, but it's the associated behavioral supports and um, at, that need to happen? And how do we think through what um, what our peer supports and case management, which we're also going to add under our Medicaid waiver? Mm-hmm. So we're trying to think holistically about um, all the various ways we can get the provider community in the door um, and then make sure they get the supports that they need. Thank you. Dr. Zerbo, let's talk a little bit about medical schools. Um, Rutgers, uh, I believe, has created a program where it's required now that Rutgers medical students graduate with uh, a certificate in medical-assisted treatment. Tell us a little bit about that and sort of how else we can better train the next generation. Yes, absolutely. Um, So this is a brand new thing that we just started this past May. So we're at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. Uh, Petros Livonis, some people may know him. He's the chair of the department there, and he also works in in addiction. Um, He and I are training all of the third-year medical students with a buprenorphine training course, which is an eight-hour requirement. You can do it all online. You can do four in person, four online, et cetera. So this is the half and half. Um, And the nice thing about this, um, we are able to train all these students in a four-hour course. They get a lot of exposure to it. The training never expires. So once they go on to do residency and then subsequently get their medical license in whichever state they're in, they can use that training from medical school to become a waiver doctor to prescribe buprenorphine. Um, And just so everybody understands, um, it's kind of a bizarre situation. In general, opioids don't require all this waiver training. It's only buprenorphine that we do this with. Um, so people are able to leave uh, residency and immediately prescribe fentanyl, Vicodin, Dilaudid, morphine, whatever you want. Um, buprenorphine, you have to do a special waiver. And this is all part of the stigma that's been around addiction forever, going back to 1914 Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. And I won't go crazy with this stuff. Um, but just to tell you, this, we're really dealing with over a century of literally stigma, not to even mention the war on drugs. Um, but just an incredible amount of restrictions that are within the field of addiction. And so up until 2002, methadone was actually the only available medication-assisted treatment for patients, and it was limited to federally regulated clinics, the methadone clinics we know today, um, simply because they were nervous to roll it out and they wanted that increased regulation in place. But it's led to this big divide in the medical community. And so what Caitlin is talking about, you have physicians in emergency rooms that don't have any dealings with a methadone clinic, so all that they know is that patients on methadone who come into the ED are more difficult and are always demanding their methadone because methadone clinics are not really functionally integrated into the rest of medicine. And buprenorphine is an excellent step forward because this is now a prescription that you can give as a physician just in your office like any other prescription. You can give a month at a time. You can give two refills. So there's not those same restrictions. But the problem is you still have to go through this waiver training. You become, uh, you get listed on a list with the DEA. They can do a site visit to your office. And that alone is enough to scare a lot of providers off from it. Um, So what we see is even the number of physicians we're able to get through and actually get the training, a very small percentage of those are actually doing prescribing and an even smaller Mm -hmm. percentage are doing high prescribing. And so you have a very tiny amount of physicians who are doing the majority of the prescribing, even if other people are holding waivers. So I think... um, like Carol said, we don't want to rush to jump to a solution um, just out of a frenzied nature of this epidemic. But I think if you stop and look at the overall picture, buprenorphine is actually the safest opioid that we have. It's a partial agonist, not a full agonist. A full agonist is something that activates that opioid system at 100%. Buprenorphine only does it at 40%. 
It's also very sticky to the receptor. So if you have buprenorphine or suboxone in your system and you use heroin, you're not going to feel it that much because the buprenorphine stays in that receptor. And so the person doesn't feel that strong euphoria. And it actually helps them break the association with it. Um, almost everybody that starts buprenorphine is going to use heroin again and test it. And it's actually helpful in a way for them to do it because they use it and they're like, oh, that wasn't as fun as it usually is. And their brain starts to learn that's not a behavior that you need to repeat anymore. It helps you break that association. So that's why I actually am not that concerned about buprenorphine being diverted to the street because if you hear people and how they use it, it's almost always because they're going into withdrawal. They use buprenorphine for a day or two to get back to using heroin or whatever their drug of choice is. People aren't starting on buprenorphine, getting addicted to it, you know, robbing a pharmacy to get buprenorphine. It's not like that at all. It's used in the street the same way that we're using it, which is for withdrawal and for maintenance. And so it's absolutely absurd that this is the opioid. You have to go through all these waiver requirements and there's all these regulations around when fentanyl, you heard, is 50 to 100 times stronger than heroin. And that uh, first year intern can prescribe that no problem. And so I think we kind of have to step back and look at this overall system and how we got here. And a lot of it is unfortunately the stigma from addiction. Um, so I went off on a huge tangent. No, I'm the, sorry, I, but yeah, <laughs> clearly you got the you got the crowd. Um, no, but I was thinking as you were describing that, I remember originally buprenorphine. There were limits on the doctors. So, for example, you they could only prescribe to a hundred patients or something. So you had very sort of boutiquey things. You didn't have someone in an FQHC who could prescribe it. So there was this natural drift, whereas people who look like, more like me could get access to this, but people who look more like some other people in this room could not. And it was this divide. Um, is that still, ex does that still exist? How does that sort of yes, shake Caitlin's out? Caitlin's nodding 100%. It's <laughs> okay. incredibly unfortunate. Um, so there, there is some literature on this, uh, kind of the socioeconomic factors. And um, even it even goes to the level of pharmacies, that uh, pharmacies in more affluent areas are more likely to prescribe and, and have, or rather to hold and dispense buprenorphine, whereas in inner cities, it can be much more of a problem. So what we see is that people who are lower socioeconomic get kind of shuffled off to methadone clinics, whereas people in more affluent areas have access to buprenorphine. Um, there's very few Medicaid providers that uh, that prescribe buprenorphine. In Newark, I literally know the other ones by name because the, they're the other ones I hear about. There's probably four. And a lot of times they're in clinic settings. And so in order to get the buprenorphine, the person has to be enrolled in the intensive outpatient program and attend groups um, nine hours a week. They have weekly urines. There's a lot of oversight, which is needed and helpful for some patients. But like Caitlin had mentioned, we want that low barrier, low entry. So I also want it available to people that aren't going to make the groups, that are just walking at random times, they deserve buprenorphine as well. And so we just need more providers, kind of more attention to this. And those patients do remarkably well um, because the thought was that perhaps if you're low socioeconomic, your life is too chaotic to be able to handle buprenorphine. I literally have patients living in abandoned houses in Newark. Like the, the windows are boarded up and they're sleeping in a random room in the house and they make it to their appointment on time with me. So there's, there's no way to predict. I'm always shocked at who is able to follow up and who's not. And it definitely doesn't have anything to do with their socioeconomic economic level. So I think we need to do a big part to make that more available. Can I just add one point on this, which is um, uh, part of the reason why we want to build a, a better Medicaid payment system uh, for our docs to do buprenorphine is to, is to help address this problem. Because one of the things that we're worried about are the cash-only providers um, who, um, who then become the, the avenue for some, for some individuals. And, you know, we, they're Medicaid-eligible individuals and they end up paying it's for cash-only providers, which isn't a good outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Payment. We were just, I was going to say, Dr. Reina, I really want to 
you have something else to add, please. Yes, but also, I, we do want to talk about sort of payment systems and how this, how, tell us about MAT from a payer perspective a little bit, if you will. So I'll, I'll um, add some color to please. what you just said. I mean, I'll give you an example. And I know we're, as a, as a country, we're nowhere close to doing what France did in 1995. They had a tremendous opioid overdose epidemic. In 1995, they used to be in the same state as we are in terms of physicians required a waiver to prescribe buprenorphine. They abruptly removed the waiver. Okay. They, removed they the, had it in 1995? They had it in 1995. Start 90, with that. That was five years before. They removed the waiver. In four years, their opioid overdose deaths fell by 80% mm. in four years. So we're nowhere close to doing that right now. But I think we have to, in terms of what we are trying to do, in terms of solutions, we have to think about advocating for thinking outside the box, looking at other countries that have led the way. Um, and, and France also did something else that was interesting, which was allowed um, physicians who were prescribing buprenorphine to basically say that this, phys this patient should be dispensed buprenorphine daily from their pharmacy. So essentially created, you know, these like methadone clinic-like environments that are every pharmacy you could have for, and that, that could be done for up to six months in the first six months in recovery. So that the, so uh, try to eliminate diversion, try to improve. And, and they had to do more of that mainly because they weren't using the buprenorphine naloxone combination, the suboxone, they were using main, just the buprenorphine. And, and so over the course since 1995 till about 2005, um, you know, they were only using the buprenorphine preparation, not the, with the naloxone, which helps, you know, diversion and all of that kind of stuff. And they did have, you know, an increase in buprenorphine overdoses because people were using it with, with uh, benzodiazepines and alcohol and using IV buprenorphine. But they had only 365 overdoses in 10 years from buprenorphine. Um, and, and, you know, so, so again, the point being that, you know, what, what you were saying is if, if suddenly today we could, you know, instead of fentanyl flooding the streets, if it was buprenorphine flooding the streets, you would have tremendously lower overdose deaths in the country. Um, so that's, that's something important to sort of keep in mind. In terms of payment, I'll give you an example of a couple of things we tried. You know, we, we realized um, about, um, I, I mean, three years ago, we looked at the data that you were talking about. In 2015, there was a study that was published that showed that of all the, all, uh, it was called ge geographic and specialty distribution of buprenorphine providers, pre prescribers or providers. And, and it, it showed that of all the people who had the buprenorphine waiver, about almost 30% had never written a single prescription for buprenorphine. Okay, and, and, and all, of all the people who did have, and when you took the average number caseload, you know, you can have a 30 patients in your caseload for the first year of your waiver, and then you could increase it to 100 patients. The average caseload was actually less than 30 for the, for, for the rest of the providers. So, so really, no, very few people, when we talk about there is a small number of people who are prescribing, like, you know, to have the caseloads full. It, it really is a very small number of providers who have a caseload full. So we, in, in, in one of our markets where we, had a we have a presence, we said, okay, you know, what can we do? You know, yes, we know that the Medicaid reimbursement rates are very low. So can we somehow incentivize providers uh, on our own, even outside of what the Medicaid fee schedule is? So we created a program. We said, okay, you know, yes, we'll, we'll do that. So we created a program. Our, our local health plan supported it. We said, you know, for, and we created like this, you know, incentives for different steps. And we said, 
If you can see a patient with opiate addiction, when we refer them to you, if you can see them within two, day, two business days and you can retain them in treatment for up to six months and start them on medication-assisted treatment and retain them in treatment for six months, we will pay you $1,000 over and above what Medicaid pays, what we would pay you otherwise as a Medicaid fee schedule. Now, that's not a lot over six months, but it is still much more than what they would get paid otherwise. And we tried to sell this program to our providers. We knew what buprenorphine wavered were already prescribing that in, they were in our network. We had not a single taker through this program for one year. Nobody took this on. Finally, we convinced a, a community mental health center to take it on. And after they take it, took it on and, and they said, oh, okay, it's fantastic. And then we would try to refer a patient to them and they would say, no, we don't want, we, sorry, we can't take this. And we're, con you know, because this person is not from this county. And I'm, well, you don't have any catchment areas designated. You can take from any county. Well, if you take from any county, we'll have a flood. Well, you have, a, you have a desert right now. You don't have rain. I mean, what flood are you worried about? You don't have a single patient. And, and they would not take. And this is about the stigma in the provider community itself. The, it's not just about convincing one provider. It's con about convincing their support system in the clinic, their nurses, their medical assistant, their, their front office staff. Everybody has to be on board. So it's a bigger task than just um, throwing money at it. So, so that was what eventually led us to supporting this ECHO strategy, uh, which was basically saying, okay, you know what? We're not going to worry about if we are going to have some, we're going to spend some money doing this, we're not going to pay incentivize providers. Instead, what we'll do is we'll, we'll fund education for providers. So through the ECHO strategy, we did this. And our first ECHO that we partially funded was in West Virginia, with West Virginia University School of Medicine. Within six months, they had 10 providers that were training regularly with the ECHO. They were participating regularly in the ECHO. Whereas the incentive program we tried to do in Indiana, we had no takers in a year. Interesting. So, add to that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about real on the ground barriers because I think then we can address them, you know, head on. So a lot of the things you're talking about are so real. Um, you know, financial incentives are helpful, but they don't address the barriers. And the education is helpful, and it doesn't address all the barriers. Um, but it, it, it's going in the right direction. So we've I've done this now when I was a fellow. I helped several federally qualified health centers start doing buprenorphine. And now at Cooper, I've started a big, you know, kind of program that takes care of the sickest patients. And we're also trying to start new satellite clinics and facing all these barriers directly. When we started, because a lot of patients come in with Medicaid, you know, and then again, as they get jobs and they have other insurance, you know, they have different barriers and a different path, but they come in with Medicaid. And again, we know Medicaid reimbursement for this is low. So it's really hard for me to say, I need to hire seven more people when we can't support that necessarily. And then the person who's doing this, the provider, I can't do it alone because prior authorizations alone for buprenorphine would take my entire day and, in fact, do take the entire day of another person. So we've now split that between three people in our office, but we have three people who, do, who spend part of their time doing prior authorizations for our patients, tracking them because they expire at different times. Every single time you change a dose, you have to do a new prior authorization. Even if I want to go down from an 8 to a 2 milligram, I have to do a new prior authorization through the insurance company. It takes a full-time job. Um, so there's 
prior authorization barriers. And when you try to do it in a primary care clinic, which we did, they don't have the staff support to do all of that. And then again, the patient who needs it in that moment goes to the pharmacy and it doesn't go through. And then they walk out and then they come back to the clinic saying, you're not helping me. And then they go back to the pharmacy saying, you're not helping me. And then the pharmacy stops carrying it because they're like, we don't want to deal with these patients in the, in the pharmacy. So that's one barrier, which we know we're trying to address. Um, there's the, the reimbursement for the support staff that you need. You have to figure out how to train people, how to interpret and do urine drug screening. You have to figure out how to train people in trauma-informed care, whether that's in our office we're using seeking safety, um, other ways to engage patients and make them feel safe when they have dual diagnosis and they're coming in. And the reason I say that is when people are really sick, they aren't, you know, when I see patients and I see them acting in a certain way, I say, I can't wait to meet you in five weeks because they're going to be different. And we know that. And now my staff knows that. And everybody knows that if someone's having a really bad day, we can ride that wave and then see them on a good day. And then we get to keep seeing them on good days and it's worth it. But that's, it takes training. It takes training of MAs and frontline staff and front desk staff, just like you were talking about. And you can, tr you can do that with Project Echo. I've seen it happen some, but it, it's really, really helpful to get experience and training on the ground because then they get to see that other side. Um, and one of the reasons I went into this field is that in my residency program, they required every single attending to get a buprenorphine waiver and carry patients. So you had to, as a family provider, you had to take care of patients who are on buprenorphine. So then every resident saw their, provi their attending providers taking care of patients on buprenorphine, and then they, they all did it as well. Um, and so you know, every day, day to day, as we're starting this in new clinics, we're realizing we have to track the number of people on buprenorphine. So we have to have systems built in Epic or other physical sy systems. We started on paper and we had a full-time job who would like enter into a secure um, Excel sheet every single patient and their active prescription dates that would track active prescriptions. And that takes a lot of time. And again, primary care offices can't always do that. Um, we had to make sure that we had DEA preparedness things set up so that if the DEA did come to the office, you know, we could say, here's our list of active prescriptions. Here's how we do urine drug screening. Here's how we do diversion control. And so all of these things are what are keeping primary care doctors from doing this. And, and even we have trained people and I have trained MAs and I have trained front desk staff who are incredible. And then we go to start it in a new clinic and everybody in the clinic is like, wait, 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 it takes 20 steps before we're able to do this, which in the healthcare world is like, six months, a year, two years. <laughs> like it takes a long time. It took us in our clinic several years to get like the appropriate point of care urine drug screening CLIA waived and in our system, not because of a lack of effort or work. I was so supported. It's just that these things take time. And so if we work to remove some of the barriers and whether that's on a federal level or local level, you know, there's there's a whole other documentation barrier for some people called 42 CFR, which is a regulation that doesn't allow people who are holding themselves out to do addiction treatment, their, their electronic health records to communicate with others, which is why we can't communicate directly with methadone clinics, why they don't connect with our EHR, why they're not on the prescription monitoring program. There are things like this that, that are actively barriers for people feeling comfortable to do this. Um, we've figured out how to address those barriers head on. In one of the federally qual qualified health centers that we did this in Seattle, we did a survey of the front desk staff and the MAs. And as we were starting, we would have one provider say, I'm going to do a pilot and I'm going to see, you know, 
five patients and then 10 patients with buprenorphine, and they surveyed them, how was your experience? Did this provider have enough patients, not enough patients, or too many patients? Um, over time, did you find that these patients improved the quality of your job or, or you know, made the quality of your job worse? Almost unanimously improved the quality of their job did not have enough patients or just enough. Nobody said too many. And many of the staff, the front desk staff, said that those patients were their favorite patients in the office. So, you know, we have to walk people through the barriers and, and break them down, and then we will, start, we will start to see the change. It sounds like a lot of these barriers are federal law, right? Um, yeah, I was going to say, Dr. Rainer, can I you add something regarding the prior authorization barrier? I yeah, I was going to ask you to address so, that, please. So, we do get questions. So, so first of all, Anthem has, in late 2016, removed prior authorization for all its commercially insured patients. So in a, none of our commercially insured plans do we have prior authorization barriers. For, for, for buprenorphine, for sublingual buprenorphine, there is no prior authorization barrier. There is, of course, no prior authorization required for oral naltrexone. We still require prior authorization for injectable naltrexone for a variety of reasons. But, but for buprenorphine, there is no prior authorization. We also support in all of our Medicaid markets, we've basically made the case that we, we want the Medicaid agency to remove the prior authorization barriers. And, and we've done that here in New Jersey as well. We've basically advocated for removal of prior authorization barriers in New Jersey as well for all Medicaid, Medicaid uh, members. Part of, the, part of the issue is we can't do it alone for Medicaid members. If there are five Medicaid MCOs, for example, in a, in a state, we can't be the only one removing prior authorization and it has to be everyone. And in one of our states, Partly what will happen because of it is, is what, what in the insure. We also, we also have a drug utilization regime that sets policy across the program. Right. 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 Pat Gillespie, guest speaker. So, so, so uh, adjunct Thank panelist. <laughs> so, 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 um, and, and, uh, so I want to, I want to say that, that, in one of our markets, we got together. Uh, the state Medicaid agency refused to do this. They refused, you know, and categorically, but all the health plans, all the MCOs were interested in doing it. So together they got together and the, MC, the state Medicaid agency said, okay, if you two all do this, we have no objection to it. So all the MCOs together removed prior authorization, uh, Medicaid MCOs removed prior authorization for generic buprenorphine preparations. And we saw utilization go up tremendously, but you know, again, overall costs came down. Is why limited to generic? Is that is that? I mean, if you're make, again, it's Medicaid uh, in terms of reimbursement. Reimbursement rates are low. All of that kind of stuff is low. Uh, you know, you have to remove. You have to start somewhere, right? Yep. Okay. And and generic is no worse. Generic buprenorphine is no no worse than branded it's, buprenorphine. Right. I understand, Commissioner. Sorry, I give you mine. Um, Sorry, <laughs> I got to hold on to it first. No, my question was just I wanted you to I wanted you to talk a little bit about what New Jersey is doing in this, as far as it, other things you can do for MAT if there's specifically for the Medicaid program. Um, but I also wanted to ask you about uh, prior uh, about uh, long term treatment facilities because my understanding is there was I think there was a law passed that required long term treatment facilities to accept patients who were on MAT um, or was it no I think it required commercial insurance to pay for MAT I'm getting confused sorry um, 
but I'm wondering, you know, how are we doing with facilities accepting? This is a question we got from the audience. Is there, are there still barriers? What is it, if you're going into a, into a inpatient facility, where do you stand? And is that something the state can do something about? So, so let me say uh, three things, and Roxanne, you'll correct me if I get this wrong. One, uh, we are taking a close look at prior off and what we can do here in New Jersey. Um, so, um, one. Two, um, uh, as part of our Medicaid waiver, we're now paying for, um, as of October 1, we'll be paying for long-term residential. Um, we said to those providers, you can't not take someone who's on MAT. Um, and, um, and we said our expectation is you will be able to provide and or have a relationship with someone who will be able to provide MAT going forward. Um, we couldn't do that on day one because a lot of them didn't have those relationships. So we said you can't reject someone who's on MAT, but our goal is to get to the place where those we're paying for facilities that actually provide MAT. Thank you. Um, we have some other good questions about stigma. Um, we've had a couple questions about, it, and clearly, there, some of this I think we'll get into a little bit in the recovery uh, session on October 25th, which is a little bit of a pitch to come back. But, um, but I think that that's when we're going to talk about, you know, what we can do as far as housing and other supports to really keep people in recovery. But I think the stigma issue. I mean, we talked a little bit about doctors um, and sort of stigma in the medical field. How how can we address sort of the broader public, you know, public in this question and how can, you know, um, employers, I mean, wh what else can the state or physicians and providers or, or payers do to sort of help the, the, the wider public understand that treatment and addiction and recovery doesn't necessarily discount someone from participating as you know, a, an employee or a full member of society? Um, so I'll start, but then others should definitely win because you see patients directly and have. Um, uh, so I will say it's very important that all of our public messaging um, is it leans in as aggressively as possible to the fact that treatment works um, and that MAT is the gold standard of clinical treatment and it is not unlike at managing your cholesterol. Like it is important that people get those um, to get those services. Um, and with apologies to Dr. Pereira, there were early messages that came out of the administration probably before your time um, that were that complicated that message. You've been able to turn that around, and that's very important. And having those kind of stronger messages across the board from all policy leaders that this is where we're going and this works. It does not help that we have policies that complicate things. But the notion that a doctor has to get a special waiver to give you this treatment or the notion that the doctor can only see so many patients or that the DEA can come knocking on their door, all those things don't help the equation. But we just have to make sure that all of our policy leaders are saying the right things and sending the right signals because um, that's what we can do. So thank you for that. Here. Thanks. <laughs> um, we've been really working with our patients in recovery who are telling their stories. There's a movement of the, you know, the Me Too kind of for addiction, the same kind of thing. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to talk about my recovery. I'm going to tell my story. There are recovery stories instead of saying, hey, my name is Caitlin and I'm an addict. I say like, hey, my name is Caitlin and I'm in long-term recovery. Um, people can stand up and talk about it and talk about their paths to recovery. And when we have lift our patients up to do that in their communities and their own 
communities. We really lift people up who can tell in any any road to recovery story. Um, there are a lot of people who are promoting my way instead of any way. And that comes with medication to treat the, the disease, whether they were able to, you know, they did it through going to a meeting every day or they did it through getting a job and parenting and, and being on medicine or they did it by, you know, seeing, you know, working within their community and people that lifted them up. There are lots of different ways to recovery and people who use medicine are in recovery and we just need to keep talking about that and hearing from them and seeing them. Um, I'll tell a story about somebody who came into my office um, who it was actually a son who was in my office, so not the patient, um, who worked as a um, as a police officer. And he, when we talked about medication, we were talking about buprenorphine, buprenorphine, he was like, absolutely not. I pull people out of cars who are on that stuff. I've like seen people totally intoxicated on that stuff. And I and I've talked to my patients about views of of people on MAT. And that they're like, oh, yeah, if you get pulled over and you just used, you say, no, 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 I'm on Suboxone. <laughs> because, of course, in that moment, if you're pulled over, you don't say to a police officer, I just used heroin. Um, you can't. And so sometimes the public perception, they see somebody who's falling over. They see somebody who is, you know, not looking well. That doesn't mean that that person is the same as when they're sober and on a medicine and doing really well. If somebody is sober and on a medicine and stable, you don't know. They look just like you and me. They drive, they work, they love, they have jobs, they have kids. Um, and so we need to see and hear from those people, I think, to decrease the stigma and keep telling that story. Um, and I think that'll help. Thank you. Um, just a, a quick thing on that. So I think we also need to look at kind of the larger societal picture. Um, if we're trying to convince physicians to be able to talk to patients about heroin in a non-judgmental way in their office visit, but then that patient walks outside and can get arrested and put in jail for having heroin on them, then you have a schism right there. So obviously there's going to be stigma associated with it. And if you look at back at the history of it, um, it's really kind of a tortured history in which drugs became illegal in this country. Uh, Harry Anslinger was the head of the DEA way back in the 1930s. Um, and he kind of took on an anti-marijuana prohibition. <clears throat> and a lot of people feel that um, the reason for that was to get more money for his department. And he went on a whole crusade against it. He ended up making it legal. It culminated that never in happens the, in federal yeah. government, right? <laughs> <laughs> They're never worried about money. Um, and then the Controlled Substance Act in 1970, which um, put into Schedule One marijuana, cocaine, heroin, LSD, all those drugs. All the evidence that we have is that when you make things illegal, um, nobody, people don't stop using it. Uh, people can easily get heroin and marijuana all over the country. I think 55% of Americans have smoked marijuana at least once. So it being illegal doesn't mean that people aren't going to have access to it. What it does is drive it into an underground market. And when they saw um, heroin become illegal in around uh, like 1914 with that tax act, um, what they immediately saw was the price of morphine. Back then they said grains. I have to look this up, but it's like a couple of milligrams. It was one or two cents per grain. And once it became illegal, it was $1 per grain. And so you saw this huge illicit drug industry basically created overnight. And people who were addicted before that, the reports are that they were functional. They were people who were middle class going to work. They would buy their opium and cocaine patent medicines from the pharmacy. Everything was over the counter. Once it goes underground, people got desperate. And 
now they have to make money. They began committing crimes, prostituting themselves. They lost their job. They lost their family. You create all these social ills by creating this black market. And at this point, the black market is worth $150 billion. And so there's big, big money in this. And there are kingpins in Colombia and Mexico in the U.S. that are arranging these enormous cartels. And so when you see these big seizures that police do, it's kind of impressive to see so many pounds um, kind of seized in one bust. That is like a drop in the bucket. It's literally nothing compared to how much we're saturated in this country. I have never met a patient who had trouble getting heroin or cocaine or crystal meth or marijuana. It's freely available in this country. The problem is because it's that black market, it's creating uh, crime and stigma and culture wars. And it's been used in a racial way that we know that America or blacks and whites smoke marijuana at the same rate. But people who are black are arrested at four times the rate. And there's actually more white drug dealers in the U.S. than black drug dealers, but all the people in prison are black or brown. And so we really have this kind of racially divided under caste system that we've created. And to make it even worse, because of this kind of tough on crime period we went through in the 1980s, we have these draconian drug laws with mandatory minimum sentencing. And a lot of judges have quit over this because they're literally giving a lifetime sentence to someone for five joints of marijuana, where somebody who murders someone walks free in 10 years. And not only that, if you get a felony, you are actually able to be legally discriminated against in terms of educational grants, in housing, um, in all these facets in life because you have that mark of a felon. And so I think we have to look at this whole system and kind of decide what we want to do. And just in the very last moment, if people want to look up what's happened in Portugal in 2001, they decriminalized recreational amounts of all drugs of abuse. And they saw what we can imagine would happen here. You take all the money out of law enforcement and you put that into treatment and prevention. You decrease stigma overnight. And people had an enormous reduction in overdose deaths and much less amount of use that it kind of people in that culture had gotten to such an opioid overdose frenzy that they asked scientists and doctors there, what can we do? And it's a smaller country. And so they were able to kind of engineer this. And they said, you need to treat this as a true public health issue. If we're saying this is a disease and then we have medication for it, why in the world are you getting arrested on the corner for it? And so we kind of have to align our political and our medical lives. And I just, I mean, this is as amazing as some of that. Yeah, I was going to say amen. Thank you. Um, it just, I just wanted to point out that I was just listening on the radio on the way down here. Uh, one of the gubernatorial candidates in, in Pennsylvania has actually proposed an a anti-drug or an addiction platform. And part of it was jailing um, dealers. Or I, I think it was executing dealers. I mean, death penalty for dealers. And it's, so that sort of mindset does still exist. Yeah. Um, Dr. Reyna, anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, and and what was the original question, though? Oh, stay. <laughs> the answer is right. Just yeah. Okay, so 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 I'll 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 add to what Dr. Zerba said. Is is um, in Portugal? I mean, we talked about. Uh, Dr. Ferrari pointed out it's not just about overdoses; it's also about other health consequences. These long-term health consequences. And I'm glad you pointed about uh, about Portugal. Portugal has had am amazing results. Their 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 rates of teenage experimentation with drugs has gone down. The rates of adult experimentation with drugs has gone up, but at overall addiction rates have dropped. And their new HIV diagnosis rates, which is called HIV incidence, went down from 104 per million um, uh, citizens per year to one. Four per million citizens per year. So from 104 every year that they were getting diagnosed with HIV, new time, new HIV, and and by all accounts, again, if you look at data about, you know how when people are using IV drugs, 
there is some studies that say that about there is a 25% HIV zero conversion every year, meaning that in among IV drug users, among 100 IV drug users, 25 will become HIV positive over the course of the next year. Um, uh, about eight, depending on which study you look at, about eight to 13% will become hepatitis C positive over the next year uh, among IV drug users. Um, so I think there is a, and, and, and when we talk about, you know, ER visits, people have ER visits, and you pointed out the example of the somebody who had come to the ER with an, re reverse with naloxone 173 times in your ER, but never really prescribed MAT. I mean, we at Anthem, for example, in our all our markets are looking for an ER collaborator who would who would start MAT in the ER. We, I mean, I've this you're the first one we found out. Uh, I mean, Yale had that study that basically showed that if you start people on Suboxone in the ER, they're, they're, a, a month later, um, something like 78% are still abstinent, whereas whereas those who get discharged from the ER without Suboxone, only about 38 with just a referral to treatment, only 38% or so are still abstinent. So it's twice as many are abstinent a month later if they're started on Suboxone in the ER. Um, and, and I think, um, and when we talk about stigma, and, and I said, you know, it's staff, it's, you know, the doctors, it's all of this. It's more than that. It's addiction recovery professionals, people who are, who are, who are um, CADC, you know, certified addiction counselors. Um, they don't have any requirement to be educated in, you know, for their certificate in MAT per se. Um, there was a study published by, white paper published by Columbia University, um, uh, what, what, what is now called Center on Addiction, it used to be called Casa Columbia in 2012, that basically showed that, you know, in majority of the states, um, in, in some states, there is no sort of background educational requirement to, to get a, to, to get a addictions uh, counselor certificate. Uh, in some states, it's only a 10th grade education. In some states, it's only an 8th grade education. Um, in some states, there's no background education requirement. There's no requirement that you got training on MAT. And only about 12% of patients seeking addiction treatment were getting, actually in addiction treatment programs, were getting uh, um, evidence-based addiction treatment. So it's a, it's a very, it's a state. And when we look at also beyond that, 12-step groups are an important recovery support. Most 12-step groups do not support medication-assisted right. treatment. I was going to say, and a lot of, I think that a good percentage of counselors have come through that right. system. Right, so they have. It's what we're they don't support. Yeah. They don't support um, a medication-assisted treatment, and and so doctors have to tell patients, you know, yes, you take this. You know, this is helping you. If you're going to go to twelve-step yep. groups, can be an important part of your recovery, but don't tell them you're taking Suboxone. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Um, we, yeah, we're we're almost done. I just want to. The commissioner has to go, but I want to do a really quick lightning round of thing. Top thing you would want to change about uh, treatment in the state of New Jersey. Of course, the person I'm going to give the mic to has all the power to do it. <laughs> <laughs> People keep telling me I have all the power, so I, I keep looking for it. Uh, 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 my big goal, our big goal in the short term, is to create incentives for there to be commu more community-based providers of MAT in our state. Um, and that's what we're driving towards, and that's what we're going to try to build in our Medicaid program uh, very shortly. Um, I would really like to see a diversion and landing pad program. So something similar to Project Lead in Seattle. This is um, and in Camden, our Chief Thompson, the first day I got there, said, give me something to do. I want to do it. Give me anywhere to bring patients but jail. 
And I said, great, we just need funding and support to do it. So there are laws out there. There are examples out there. Instead of arresting somebody on the corner, you can enroll them in treatment. And then you just need the funding and the landing pad to do that. Um, my big ask, I think, and it's been clear already on the panel, would be um, prior auths, prior auths, prior auths. They are the <laughs> most burdensome of every provider. It's, it's honestly, um, when I talk to providers, that's actually the number one reason why they don't want to start. Even if they like these patients and they want to do it, they're just so worried about the time sink with it. Um, and then also, my other thing would be to have a fuller spectrum of services. That it needs to be very easy to get someone into a rehab, into an IOP, into an outpatient level, into any and into methadone as well. We just need to have a wide variety of substance abuse programs at different intensity levels that are able to accept patients quickly. That would be ideal. For, for, for New Jersey, I, I mean, for, for the nation, I would say, you know, remove the waiver requirement for Suboxone. For, for, for New Jersey, I would say, remove the prior auth requirement. I would second that. I would say that for Medicaid, you remove this prior auth requirement. I think that will help a lot of people. It will help a lot of providers. Um, I think that's the number one thing that can be done that will have a really big impact very quickly. I'm using my outside voice. Um, thank you very much. Uh, John's got a few last minute words yeah, for us. I also want to thank uh, Lilo for her moderating. Um, <laughs> and thank all of you and Dr. Ferrari again for being here. Um, I think it's a really important discussion and uh, obviously we'll be keeping it going October 25th, Douglas College. Uh, there will also, as I mentioned, there will be um, a story on this and, and a page on our site. So keep Stay tuned on that, and hopefully, is your presentation, can we put that on? And, and yep. Dr. Ferrari's presentation will also be up on the site. Um, but thank you again. Uh, there are surveys. Uh, again, if you can fill that out, it helps us improve uh, and, and make these more compelling uh, going forward. But thank you all so much for being here, and uh, look forward to seeing you at the next one. You, Lilo? I'm sorry, just oh. a brief... I Hold the applause, please. Uh, just a brief announcement from Dr. Zerbo that may be very relevant to some of your folks. I'm so sorry. I'm not a good PR person. I forgot this right till the end. Um, we just got approved for an ACGME accredited addiction medicine fellowship. Um, so addiction psychiatry as a fellowship has been around for a long time. Uh, addiction medicine is brand new this year to be fully accredited. And we're actually the first fellowship of that kind in New Jersey. That's at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School starting in July 2019. We have three positions open and it's for physicians from any specialty, either coming straight out of residency or even mid-career, later career, and it's to come and do a one-year fellowship with us to study in addiction medicine, and then after that, you'd be eligible to take the board certification exam. The information for that is on our department website, so if you just Google Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School of Psychiatry, you can see it on the website. And um, for people that don't have time to do a full fellowship, Petra Slavonis and I are also doing one of the ECHO programs for substance use disorders, and that's going to launch um, probably sometime in October, and that also will be on our department website. Uh, it's a really nice program. I think it's six or so sessions that are webinar based. And the idea is you have a short presentation on an addiction topic, but then there's an opportunity for people to ask questions via online, uh, to get mentorship. And so it's a really nice way to get more experience if you don't have time to do a fellowship. So please spread the word. Yeah. And let me add, Thank uh, you. folks are going to be sticking around for a while. Uh, so you can yeah. follow up all of this. I mean, part of the, obviously part of being here is, is the networking and connections you can make. So feel free to hang around for a little bit. And thank you again very much for coming. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this NJ Spotlight Roundtable podcast. Be sure to join us for the next roundtable in this series on opioid addiction and treatment, which will take place Thursday, October 25th at the Rutgers Douglas campus in New Brunswick. For more information, visit njspotlight.com. For everyone at NJ Spotlight, this is Steve Lubetkin. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you out there on the net. Take good care. NJ Spotlight, news, issues, and insight for New Jersey.